0: Welcome to the Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Sarah Shackett, I'm a writer over at IndieWire, and today I am here to ask you to watch EXPATS. This miniseries is really good, y'all, and very smart, from camera work and production design that tell on the characters, to editing and score that make their feelings feel as big and absurd as they are. I am. Just straight up dropping my biases and letting you know I really liked this one. And so I was very excited to get to talk to the series creator and director, Lulu Wong, about it, about why she started with episode five, which is feature length, about the joys of bottle episodes, about shooting in Hong Kong, about a lot more. So, first, please go watch Expats, and then please enjoy this conversation with Lulu Wong. I would love to to start out by asking you a little bit about the music on this show. Both the, uh, the the soundtrack is immaculate. When Safe and Sound came on, I just was thrown back to another era in time. But the score uh, particularly feels like it is doing story work and really carrying us between uh incidents and and between episodes. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how you thought about the music on the show.
1: Thank you. Um, That's a great question. I have a music background. I'm a classically trained pianist. So I think that um, music is something that is part of my consciousness, whether I'm writing or editing. Um, And then, of course, working with my incredible composer, Alex Weston. Um, who also did the score on The Farewell. And I think that we um, start by, you know, talking about canons. Like, I always like to come up with um, a a canon because uh, the repetition of one piece of music feels um, more powerful and it makes it feel like the sound of the show or the world rather than just kind of, like, coming up with all kinds of score all over the place. and. And so we always come up with our core themes, if you will. Um, Like on the farewell, it was the lie. That was the, you know, the very first time we hear that theme. And then there's all of these different um, renditions of it. And here, the first theme that we came up with is the perpetrator theme. I think that was a really important one just to help us find the tone and the space that we're in. Um, that there's intrigue and it's a little bit dark. and um, yet we knew we wanted it to have um a momentum. like it shouldn't just be this languid, yeah, sad, sad piano, yeah, sad piano, exactly. I think there is a cue that's called, you know, sad piano or despondent David or something. Um, and um, Alex will tell you, um it would be David that would despondent David. yeah, exactly. There, Alex will tell you that, um, We uh, debated a lot over this, but I kept saying no piano. And I don't know why, but I sort of just was like, I mean, it's weird because I'm a pianist, but I just had this feeling that we couldn't, we shouldn't use piano in the entire score. And except for episode five, there is piano. But then, you know, piano, can't, like there were moments where piano came back in, um, but I didn't, I don't know why. I just like that was like my rule initially was like, let's not go to piano. Um, and then eventually when piano did come back in, there are certain cues um, like Despondent David. I almost feel like um, the piano works uh, ironically, mm-hmm. you know, um, in every episode except for five, like five felt like. There could be a non-ironic piano. Um, I don't know why. But yeah. I mean,
0: it's it's always good to have rules and just sort of give yourself some constraints. Um, because yes. otherwise, the possibilities are too huge. Exactly. I, I'm curious, in terms of breaking the story, did you start with five um, or, and kind of work around it? Because it it is uh, such this uh, tempestuous piece.
1: Yeah, we jumped around a lot and we... Um focused a lot on five and then we would jump to other places to other episodes to figure out like what do we need to set up so that this really pays off in five and then five uh, episode five was something we had to come back to a lot because we wanted it to work as a standalone and so both in writing it and shooting it and editing it we had to keep making sure that it both worked for people who hadn't seen the rest of the series but also didn't feel repetitive of information that people who had seen the series already knew, and we were just repeating it for
0: sake of exposition. No, that makes a ton of sense. I'm curious because, uh, you know, this is a collaborative effort in the room. Did you do any sort of prep or talk to anyone or or um, kind of... I'm curious about your preparation to go into the writer's room and also if there were any sort of surprises or, or things that... Um, you discovered um, in, do, in working that way? I probably
1: should have talked to someone. <laughs> don't know why I didn't. That's uh, a good idea um, th- that I often think of too late in the process. Um, I don't know why I wasn't nervous about it. I just felt like, oh my gosh, this is such like a luxury because I always write alone that just to have different perspectives was going to be wonderful. And um. It was very unstructured. We would sometimes go into the room and not even talk about breaking story and would just talk about our lives. And then we'd be like, oh, it's like two o'clock in the afternoon. We should probably put something on that board. But then we'd, be, you know, we would reference all the things we talked about that day, the things that were really on our minds. We were talking about current events, the state of the world and how we were feeling as um, women, as mothers, as daughters, as sisters and um and then all of that somehow ended up it's a feeling that ends up you know in in the project um the thing that i did find to be interesting is um some of the writers like your simran santu has been in a ton of rooms um from game of thrones to you know like just uh, you know um, has spent the majority of her career doing writers rooms and so when she first came in and we didn't know each other before this room um she would always raise her hand and there's five of us drinking bubble tea in a room in culver city and you know um you know alice bell um uh, my executive producer and writer, and who was also um, instrumental in the genesis of this project, um, had her dog with her. And so we were just like, "I'm like, Kristina, why, why do you keep raising your hand?" And she's like, "I'd like to pitch an idea." I'm like, "Pitch an idea? Is that like a writers' room thing?" Or she's like, "Yeah, like you can't just talk." And I was like. Wait, what? No. What do you mean? We've all just been talking. And so I think just like not knowing the rules in some ways, um, I think helped me because we we didn't function in a hierarchical
0: way. Yeah, I suppose raising your hand would make more sense. if There's like 20 writers in a room or something. It's true. Five. It sounds like you had a wonderful sort of collaborative circle of everything being... Whether it was related to the show or not, feeding back into the show. Yes, exactly. One thing that I, I was struck by, that, and this is both a, a writing and a filmmaking question, is just how powerful their use of sound is in the show. Um, and in there's, there's sort of moments when you notice it, when the sound is very subjective to Margaret, um, as she's sort of feeling the pain of Gus's loss, and then there's just like extremely accurate cityscapes that gives you a flavor of Hong Kong. And so I'm curious how you think about sound in the writing process and also what your approach was to sort of capturing some of those big sound moments in the series.
1: I think from my background as a musician and, um, you know, being classically trained, that there's something in rhythm and in the way rests work within the music. Um, you know, like here's... A, a whole note that you're holding versus here's, you know, quarter notes or here's a staccato note or here's legato um, or, you know, there's a rest followed by fortissimo, like big bang, right? Like a big, you know, big chord. And so I think those juxtapositions are just part of my consciousness. And in some ways it works its way into um, my filmmaking. And I actually travel Around when I'm scouting and when I'm just walking around with, um, I try to bring my Zoom HD, similar to what you have there. (laughs) And when I don't have it now, you know, I have my iPhone, and so many sounds that you hear are things that I just recorded um, on my phone or on my Zoom if I have it. And I would send it to our sound designer. And um, we also had uh, sound designers in Hong Kong who would go and record things around the city. So it's just, I think that sometimes there's a sound that's so specific that to recreate it and try to explain it to someone like the tinniness of a particular um, jackhammer that you're hearing or, you know, there's a a moment um, in episode three. That was inspired by a moment in real life that happened while we were scouting. We went to go scout the flower market, and we couldn't hear each other talk. And we were like, "This location, or what? And I just thought, oh, this has to be in it. Like, this is the scene. Is that she's just trying to order flowers, and she's dealing with the trauma of, of of what's happening in this moment to her, and this text message that she gets, and then." Meanwhile, this like construction and this truck comes through and we're barely going to be able to hear what she's saying. So I think um, I just draw a lot from uh, real life.
0: Um, I love that idea of rest, too. I feel that very much there's sort of like uh, these transitive moments I'm thinking about. I think it's the end of three where they uh, take the car early in the morning to, to go to the mainland or, you know, some Um, of Mercy walking through the city that just feel like moments of rest before we go on to the next thing. It's very cool.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. I think it's just um, creating this rhythm, right? And you you need, in the same way that a song is made of verses and choruses, and I think that's also the contrast between score and pop songs. And there's moments in which you, there's a bridge or there's a, a verse that's quite lyrical, but then you bring people into a chorus that they recognize. And there's something... Um, really familiar about it
0: you give them that high and then you can take them back into another verse. Also you know sort of uh, create a variation where we we make a connection in our mind but something is slightly different and so therefore it's either funnier or sadder mm-hmm. um, and you know I just see for a series that has to juggle all all of these characters and kind of span this incredible amount of time and big emotions it feels like so natural but also probably necessary to structure it in that way
1: yeah yeah i think so i mean it is it is a lot it is the intersection of a lot so you are like uh, to give everybody space but then you know that that saying that they have that like when you're in a relationship with someone, it's not just two people, it's actually three because it's you, it's them, and then it's your relationship to each other is its own character. And so I felt like I was doing that. Like there's Hillary, there's Mercy, there's Margaret, and then there's all of the relationships to each other, and then there's all of their relationships to you know the helpers that that, that service them and th- that serve that serve their family. And let me say that again. Um, and then there's all of these domestic workers as well, and their relationship to the city as a character, and so um definitely just trying to balance all of those threads.
0: Can I ask about the the choice speaking of of the, the three of them and and kind of them being characters and then their relationships to each other being characters. You you really feel that in the way that you choose to photograph them in sort of that final dialogue that they all kind of have between each other in episode 6 and I'm I'm curious about that choice to just like go close on on everybody's face and have them just speak their piece to to us and, and to each other.
1: Yeah. In many ways, the things that they're saying to each other, we could all say to each other, you know. And even though Margaret's the one t- talking, Hillary could also be saying that thing. And so... It felt like specific and universal at the same time. And it was a challenge because it had to work on all of those levels. And we play with the confusion of who is she talking to? And and then the reverse is someone different and we're constantly shifting. So, again, it's about perspective and it's about not falling into binaries. Um, You know, the show starts with talking about perpetrators versus victims, how easy it is for everyone to identify with the victim and to sympathize with them because we've all felt victimized at some moment in our lives, but we really don't like to think about ourselves as perpetrators. But chances are we're all perpetrators on some level or another in someone else's story. Even if you just had a bad day and cut someone off in traffic, you know, it happens. And so um, I think that this ending is really about just all of them being human, all of them being perpetrators um, and victims, and oftentimes the perpetration comes out of having been victimized, right? Um, and, and and that is a kind of um, privilege and selfishness. Well, I've been through this grief. I'm now allowed to behave badly. Well, are you? And to what degree? I mean, I don't have an answer.
0: No, that's, uh, but, uh, but that's why it's, it's thrilling to explore because You know, everybody is right and everybody is wrong. And so the intermixing of them that's like, this isn't just about this relationship. It's about sort of all of it is very cool. I am curious about uh, an episode where uh, it is very defined who is talking to whom because they are either locked in a room or in an elevator. (laughs) Um, And that seems like a really fun filmmaking challenge to sort of take that sort of constrained space and make, you know, over the course of like an hour of television, those interactions feel dynamic and, yeah, visually interesting.
1: That's what's so great about television. I mean, you talked earlier about limitations uh, and giving yourself limitations. And I think that episode is the perfect example of that. The idea came from okay, let's do a bottle episode where they're all trapped. And I want it to feel like a play. I want it to just be about these characters because also I knew that episode five would be this grand opus to Hong Kong. And so then the episode right before it is the opposite. They're all trapped in small spaces that are not representative of the world that they're in. Then we had to come up with where they were each trapped in. So, you know, sometimes just kind of working backwards from those ideas and limitations uh, rather than kind of coming up with the idea first. And and that really is great because I think we didn't have necessarily an ending for episode three yet. But then because we knew in episode four she needed to be trapped, we were like, well, how do we construct a a narrative in which she would be trapped and what would make sense and where would she be trapped so you know so it just creates like all of these threads of ideas
0: speaking of the the sort of world that the characters uh mostly inhabit sometimes when they are trapped elsewhere not i was really struck by how like y'all nail that kind of like very polished sleek cold elite uh kind of style of home design and, and all of the apartments um but still kind of all of uh the characters personalities are infused into them still it's not you know sort of like succession anonymous mm-hmm. um which is you know the point where with which with what Succession is doing. That's fine. Um, but I'm, I am I would love to hear you talk a little bit about um, sort of creating character through space.
1: Well, I think it's because it's a show about women and women have um, a very specific relationship to their space that I can't speak to about men necessarily. But I just know for these three women, it felt like there was not, it, it wasn't cold. Like even Hillary's, a sort of immaculately designed and monochromatic home was a reflection of her perfectionism, her need to control everything because her so much has been out of her control in her life. And so um we didn't want it to, yeah, feel generic. Um, it's really a testament to both my production designer Young Ogley and my cinematographer Anna Francesa Solano. Um, they really, really work so closely together, and they fight a lot. <laughs> and uh, um, and I love that because if they're fighting, I don't have to fight. I'm like, you guys are so detail-oriented, so specific, and you care so much that if you guys fight it out and work it out, then we're going with it because like, I know I just trust you guys so much. And so, um, especially with a project of this size, I... Um, just allowed them to do that, and they're like, "You be the tiebreaker." I'm like, "I don't need to be a tiebreaker. You guys just figure it out, and then you come present it to me." But I mean, all that being said, I often was the tiebreaker. So, <laughs> <laughs> and we, you know, and 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 it's uh so much about space, like because the the camera, the frame, and the furniture and the you know design that's in it, like it's all related, and so if you you're not it's it's different than just designing something for off camera like for for life you know it's it's all about how it looks through the frame and so there's just many many considerations and and space like sometimes it's just too busy like there's just there's so, so many great things and lights and but there's it creates an imbalance in the frame and you so a lot of times we had to
0: remove things as well Yeah, I feel like there's an incredible art, especially in Mercy's apartment, to making things look busy without it actually being as cluttered as that space probably would be.
1: Yes, exactly. The like very intentional use of negative space, which is something we thought a lot about in The Farewell also. And just how do you make white
0: walls look interesting? I loved specifically like in episode five for the conversation about God and does Jesus know where Gus is and just like as poignant and, and kind of tortured as it goes, um, that that's candlelit. Um and you have the the wonderful uh like justification of there's a storm, the power is out, but like there's something about Nicole Kidman and candlelight. Um <laughs> and just the the, the the way that you and Anna like used light in that scene and by who was standing and who was sitting you could feel like power balances shifting. Like it's so cool.
1: Thank you. I really love that scene. Yeah. Um, I think it it came out um, it came out really well, and I love the the monologue that uh, Pastor Allen gives as well, um, and yeah, and I, and I mean those are the kinds of scenes that I think um, mm-hmm. I, I that justify why I do all of this. Like it's just so juicy, and it it, it is constantly shifting, and it's, there's. You're like emotional and then somebody says something and it's shocking. Yeah, and it was a beast to edit as well, you know, because you're trying to go, well, whose perspective are we in? And like all dialogue scenes at a dinner table, you know, that's the thing i'm 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 navigating is you know, who do we lean into more and how long do we sit on each person and what they're feeling before we let someone else talk? But yeah, thank you.
0: Uh, I, this is this is a compliment to you and the editors, I suppose, is is that it, it doesn't feel like there was a ton of coverage. But do you try and, you know, sort of run it a bunch so that you can get everybody and then kind of piece it together in the edit? Or do you have sort of key moments of a scene like that? Kind of like, OK, we need to make sure the camera is here so that Margaret realizes Essie told the kids about Jesus or, you know, things of things of that nature. Yeah,
1: we usually don't do a lot of coverage. That one is probably one of the scenes that has the most coverage, actually, just because, you know, you do want to be close to every single character. It is a very intimate scene. And um, so for that one, it was um, more traditionally covered, even though it's still single camera. We went, you know, actor to actor and we gave them... Um, you know, they would do their takes, and then we would um, do a closer version. So, yeah, that was a more traditional one. Uh, I would say, yeah.
0: Generally, you do less coverage and kind of make choices with the camera.
1: Yeah, generally, Anna and I will come up with um, sort of a blueprint for what the scene should be and what the big idea of the scene is. Like, we always want there to be a big idea. Even if that idea is we, we're we not going to shot list this. We're just going to come in handheld. Um, we're going to let Nicole do her thing and then we're going to follow her and it'll just be very um, improvised. That's an idea though, right? But we, you don't want every scene to be that, right? And so every scene deserves its own idea. And so we'll come up with that idea, with the, the, the general blocking of it, and then we rehearse and block with the actors and sometimes they'll say well this doesn't quite feel really natural and I don't know if I would sit there and I would say well this is my intention of like why we're shooting it this way is there somewhere else that felt that that still allows us to convey this idea but that would feel more natural for you as an actor and so you know we have those conversations and we work out we make any changes that we need to make and uh, then everyone comes to set knowing that this is uh, perhaps a scene that is um, going to take many takes because it, it's more complicated. There is blocking, people coming into frame and then you go out and there's a timing and a coordination with the camera and the actors but then there's no coverage. Then you're done. And then there's other scenes in which you know you're going to have to do um, it multiple times but that this, the camera would be locked off and it'll be fairly simple. And so I like to just let the actors know ahead of time um, so also they know where to and when to save their performances and for which moments.
0: Shifting topic slightly, I'm curious about the casting process, particularly for the kids who are tremendous, Um, but it's a lot to ask. And I'm kind of curious, yeah, how you went about that? We did so much casting on Zoom.
1: It's incredible that... um, that it that it works that way now and it is easier there's something that I miss sometimes about being in person but you know it also allows you to see so many more people um, who might not have otherwise like traveled and it was also really fun to see you know what would Nicole Kimmons kids look like if they were half Asian yeah. Um, yeah and so I don't know I don't I don't it was just it it was fairly straightforward actually you know when we saw Bodhi when we saw Tiana it was just uh immediate like I knew with both of them they almost felt like they were siblings like I didn't ask what their exact you know genetic makeup was you know it didn't matter like as long as I believed them I felt that the audience would believe um that they were the kids of um Margaret and Clark and they're both just like such um spirited kids as you imagine but they both uh have layers but behind that you know um for both of them like learning more about their lives you know they're not just like oh kids who are goofy like they have these whole inner worlds and things that they're sad about and scared of and and they really bring that to the performance and that's what I wanted is that even in all of the acting out and however they were behaving that you can feel that there is some deep trauma.
0: Oh, yeah. No, I think particularly when kids dealing with a parent who is not dealing with life well mm-hmm. and sort of that, you know, beginnings of uh grown-upness of uh, I need to be this way for this person because they need that. You know, there's there's ample opportunity for them to sort of show like an emotion behind an emotion. It's very cool. The other thing I have not asked you about that, I would love to, uh, because it's a a huge challenge, um, is that there are many different ways you could uh, approach depicting um, the Umbrella Movement. And I'm curious kind of what options you thought about and why the way you did it ended up being um, the right way. You
1: know, it's not a show about politics specifically, um, but I also don't think that any character exists in a vacuum, right? We are all who we are, shaped by the times that we're in, the culture, the events. And so I was trying to figure out how to make the political history and the background not background. Um, And yet it has to be in the background in some ways, right? Because Also, the truth of it is it doesn't really affect our expats that much. And so how do you do both of those things? Show that it doesn't affect them that much, but then also show it and show the importance of it and center it in many ways. And so I did that through uh, local characters, you know, again, Charlie, uh, who was a boy in the book. And not, uh, you know, the the, the activism storyline, it was not in the original novel by Janice. Um, but that's something that we came up with in the writer's room. Um, Charlie and then Tony um, and then Tony's mother. And again, just looking at the different perspectives and really focusing on the human story, um, you know, the the human experience within a political Context, and so I looked to my own life. You know, I lo- I thought about the conversations that my mother had with my father, and with me. Whenever I want to go out and I want to change the world, and you're young and you're um, ambitious and optimistic, and her fears, and I wanted to represent that through when through um, the mother. Also, I wanted to show real footage. It, you know, I, I there's um, obviously there are. Limitations um, in production that also help contribute to those. Like you know, just thinking in terms of like, would we recreate? Would we, you know, and and how would we do that? And should we do that? And then realizing like, you know, that there is uh, an opportunity to just show what actually happened
0: yes how it sort of redounds into like, i i love the shot of um margaret walking past the two uh mops that we know that wen left um and it's just this great visual totem of how like she's not affected but like it's echoing all around her what's happened um and and the fact that like you were very strategic with the recreations and how they affect the characters we're following leads to some very cool visuals.
1: Yeah, the mops were something that was um, that we came up with in the writer's room. And, and it, that was the fun of it. We would come up with things and we'd be like, and I would just be like, I love the mops. That's a character now. And, and so then all the time we would be like, well, what do we do here? Can we bring the mops back? Well, there's no mop in this episode. We need more mops. And, you know, it was kind of this like running joke, but then also it wasn't. And it, it did have this um, real symbolic meaning throughout
0: the whole series. It's a massive undertaking and a huge beast. I'm curious if there were any particular challenges with uh, the editing of this show.
1: I think the challenge in production and editing of something of this scale is just trying to keep the continuity um, in place. And, you know, if you're shooting a scene in episode two and the next day you skip to episode six and then you come to back to episode one and, you know, the scenes right before the scene you're about to shoot, you shot six months ago. Like, how do you keep that? The tone of everything together, and 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 even just for like hair and makeup, and you know just the basics of of continuity. Um, but for me, really, just like making sure, okay, this does this still work? Like the advantage is that you're editing while you're shooting, and so you can watch, and then that sh- shapes how you might approach the scene. And so I think you just always have to be alert it's not like you can just wander onto set and be like we'll figure it out like you i have to watch the scenes before i have to you know watch other scenes that we shot later to make sure that we're setting up all the things that need to be set up because even though you have the scripts like sometimes you don't realize things there's moments where people you know you kind of go oh wait like we don't actually know this so how do we know that and we how, how do we You know, there was that. How do we not realize that in the writer's room? But, you know, okay, we realize it now. We got to fix it. Um, And so there was a lot more flexibility than on like a 26 day feature film shoot where once you get it, you're done and that's it. And and but, you know, that also does create its own challenges of um, just jumping Timelines, And on top of that, the show is nonlinear. So you're episode two, but that actually happened before episode one. And so there was a lot of confusion. People were like, yeah, even today, we're like, what episode is Gus in? Of course, he's only in episode two, two. for obvious reasons, which you'll know if you see the show. <laughs> <laughs>